0: Welcome to the Vivid Church Podcast. Wherever you're listening from today, it's our hope that this message would help you reflect the light of Jesus' life for all to see. I want to start with a word today. I'm excited to preach. Um, I'm going to teach a little bit today. This is probably the most teachy message. Uh, If if you're new to church, we say there's like teaching and preaching a little bit, right? It's kind of just like a bit of a euphemism, but it's like teachers tell it and preachers yell it, right? You know, that's kind of like the thing. And so I'll probably yell a little bit today because I can't help myself. But I'm going to teach today. Okay, we're going to talk about the Bible, and so we're going to get right to it right now. And so just like Dustin said, if you got your notes app open on your phone, you're going to want to take some notes today. Really excited. We're in a a new sermon series a couple weeks ago. It's not so new anymore, but it's called Study Guide, and we're learning as a church how to study our Bible kind of going into the summer. Um, Some of you have been studying the Bible for decades, and some of you have been studying the Bible for weeks since we started this series, and we want to equip you with some tools to get more passionate about studying your Bible. Christians love their Bibles, amen? And so we want to fall more in love with our Bibles today. You can open your Bible today to Acts chapter 8, verse 9, we're going to get straight to it. Okay, Now, I'm going to read about uh, almost 20 verses here, and so stay with me, but let's read together. I'm reading out of the NIV. Now, for uh, some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. Okay, this is the book of Acts, this is a story of the early church, and what we're seeing is the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles kind of come in t- contact with the pagans and the idol worshipers and the sorcerers, and we're, we're seeing that the power of the gospel is overtaking what's happening in the city. We're seeing the apostles do miracles and people are getting saved, and people are going, wow, whoever, whoever's God does those miracles, I want to follow that God, and people are starting to follow Jesus. And so there's this dude named Simon. He's a sorcerer. He's like, shaka, Avada cadaver," or whatever they do, you know? And, and stuff's happening, and he's just tricking people and all that type of stuff. So Acts 8.10. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Yeah! But when they believed Philip, uh, Philip was an apostle, right? Or Philip was a preacher, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God, contrary to what Simon was doing, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself ended up believing, and he was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the signs and miracles that he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Right? When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Watch this. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Right. So, so he sees well, there's this power, when the Holy Spirit's moving, I want that power that's going to help me be more powerful. And so he's like, I'll buy this power from you. That's what he's saying to the apostles. And he said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord and hope that he may forgive you for having such an evil thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. I want to preach a message today. Here's the title. You can write it down at the top of your page, content and context context. We're going to go back to that scripture in just a bit, but I want you to remember and then we're going to get back to it. I want to pray that God would speak to us and we're going to get right to it. Lord Jesus, would you speak to us today? Would you speak to us so that we could have proper context when we study your word? So that as we study your word, we're not just studying our version of your word, but we're actually studying your version of your word in the proper way. God, help us to understand that today. In Jesus' mighty name, come on, everybody said amen. 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 I want to talk about why context is important today. Hey, when we're studying our Bible, we've got to study it in context. Uh, I learned a, a great lesson about context just recently. I've been a musician since I was like 12 years old. I've always loved playing music. Actually, before that, I was a musician. My mom uh, would torture me when I was a a little kid by forcing me to practice the piano. Anybody else? Come on. Anybody else? Your parents? Come on, let you. There you go. We got some hands raised there. Yeah. My Uncle Barry has his PhD in piano. Okay, he, he's, he's been the dean of a university in California for 40 years. He just retired this year. He's going to come to our second service, and I'm going to make fun of him. Praise the Lord. And, uh, and he, he used to torture me. Who knows, back in the, in the 90s, in the early 90s when I was a kid, you couldn't just watch uh, cartoons on Netflix, but you had to, this is crazy, you had to wait until 8.30 until Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came on, okay? And then, and then you, you'd get to watch it, but you could only watch it once. Once a week, so all week long, you're anticipating watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And what would happen to me is my uncle would stay with us all summer long. He'd fly up after his reading break or whatever and and, and stay with us in Vancouver from California. And and he'd stay in our house. And it was always at about 8 o'clock in the morning as I was anticipating watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He'd say, Kobe, we need to practice piano. And I'd say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. And he made me practice the piano. And then my mom, you know, I complained to her, and she said, well, you've got to play some sort of instrument. So she put me in violin lessons. And I used to torture my family with the violin. Oh, I remember my ear was pretty good as a kid, and I could hear how bad I was playing. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 Squawk that was how I played violin, it was just terrible, and uh, I remember practicing violin, and, and, and uh, I remember one time, one time, I think I was like five or six years old, I had a recital, and all the kids had to do in the recital was stand, and there was an auditorium full of like 1,200 people, and you'd hold your violin like this, and then you'd bow, and then you'd walk off, and everyone would clap for you, so it was really cute, and nobody laughed at that, but it's okay. Um, Praise God. But but it was just this cute thing. You know, I loved music. And then I finally fell in love with the guitar when I was 12 years old. And I've just never gone back since. I've always loved playing the guitar, playing the bass. I'm teaching my son Jacob how to play the bass now. I get to be involved in music in church. It's so much fun. And all my life studying music, I've always known that there was this thing that existed called classical music. Classical music. And to me, it was always extremely boring. Who wants to listen to classical music? This is elevator music. I know that it's good, but it's not good. What's really good is modern music, not classical music. And a little while ago, I just started to go, man, I've been a musician now for over like you know, 20 years, and, and I, need to, I need to look into this. I'm, I'm a worship pastor now. I should probably figure out the, the evolution of music through the church. And I started to study classical music and something crazy happened. The more context I got, the more excitement started to build on the inside of me. I started to study Bach. Johann Sebastian Bach. And I found out that he grew grew up in Leipzig, Germany. And Bach was, was one of the most amazing composers that ever lived. He would write music. For his church, Bach was actually hired by his church to write beautiful symphonies and and beautiful concertos and beautiful pieces that they would play on Sundays in church. And in this little city, you didn't have to be rich to go to the opera to listen to beautiful music. But in fact, all you had to do was love Jesus, and you got to go to church. And in church, free of charge, you got to hear some of the most amazing music that's ever been created in the the history of humanity here in the church, and all of the pieces of music that he would write, he'd write them to glorify and honor God. One of Bach's pieces that's really famous is called "Jesu, Joy of Man's Desiring, and it goes, and you might know it, you might have heard it before. That's Bach. Bach had 20 children, Okay. He had four kids with one lady. She passed away during childbirth of the fourth. And then he had 16 more, okay? And, and 10 of them made it to adulthood because times were so tough back then. And they all became amazing composers. And some of those composers trained a little kid, and his name was Mozart. And, and Mozart, he, he was a child prodigy at age six. Mozart was so brilliant, he could play complex piano pieces with one finger, and he was so good that his dad would travel around and make money off of him as a little kid. He was like Miley Cyrus. He was like a child music kid. And he'd go to the queen, and he'd play pieces for the queen, and the queen would be like, oh my goodness, you know? And, 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 and this kid was amazing. He wrote his first symphony at age nine. You can go listen to it on Spotify. It's called Symphony One by Mozart. He's nine. I have a nine-year-old. She can't write a symphony. <laughs> He was a genius. He started writing all this music. Throughout Mozart's life, he wrote over 600 astounding pieces of music. That's two per month for his entire life. He died at age 36. That's one year older than me. And he's thought of to be one of the greatest musicians and greatest composers that ever lived. That kind of makes me feel insignificant, hey? Crazy, the body of work. And then this guy came along. His name was Beethoven. And Beethoven's my favorite. Beethoven had perfect pitch. That means he can hear any note and he can tell you exactly what note it is without any reference point. He had an amazing ear. And Beethoven began writing these amazing pieces of music. But at age 25, Beethoven could no longer hear the top note of the piano anymore because he started going deaf. And you lose your high end first. And you see the pieces of music, that, the beautiful pieces that he's writing, get lower and lower and lower in registers. He starts to lose his hearing. Until finally, at about age 40, he completely loses his hearing and goes into a deep depression where he actually wants to end his own life because the amazing gift that God has given him and he recognized that God had given it to him, he's writing music for the church, he, he, it's, he can't write anymore, and he prays, and he pours his out. We have letters of Beethoven pouring his heart out to God saying, Lord, why did you take this gift from me? And then all of a sudden, he gets courage again, and he starts to write. And all the music that was in the lower register as he was losing his hearing is no longer low, but he's using the full expanse of music because he's no longer writing with his ears. He's writing with his heart and with his memory. And it's in this time we get Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. That's joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. And some people think it's the great masterpiece of history. And it's the force of joy through suffering that created that piece of music. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like everybody wants to go home and listen to some classical music. Can I get a big amen? Come on. I just got excited about, about Bach and Mozart and Beethoven. Listen, context is powerful. Context what was once boring to me All of a sudden became a fascinating adventure through history, giving me excitement about the text, and context about the text, and meaning, and accuracy, and understanding. It gave me a web where I could place things into, so no no longer these pieces were just, I don't even know what the context is to this piece of music. I don't even understand where it came from, but I know the period, and I know why it exists, and I know why they created it, and I know how genius you have to be, and I'm telling you, it just brought so much life to music, listen, so many of us have not taken time to understand the context of our Bibles. And you read the Bible, and it seems boring to you. And you read the Bible, and we get lost because there's no context. We're just reading the Bible and, and, and we're going, man, this is an old book and I'm not quite understanding what's going on here. And I want to encourage you, just like a little bit of context of classical music built some excitement and energy. Getting a little bit of context when you're reading your Bible can build excitement and energy. You can have shelves in your brain where you can place the amazing diamonds of truth in God's word. See, see, if we don't have context, we begin to create cults. Cults are created when we take Bible out of context. See, we read about Simon the sorcerer earlier. Simon the sorcerer He wanted the Holy Spirit, but he took the power of the Holy Spirit out of context. And when he took it out of context, he said, I want to buy the Holy Spirit. Peter's like, oh my goodness, Simon, you don't understand anything about the nature of the Holy Spirit. That is not how we use the Holy Spirit. That is not how we operate as a church. And he rebukes Simon. And and listen, Peter literally says, if you keep thinking this way, you're going to die. If you keep thinking this way, you're, you're going to fail to see Jesus. If you keep thinking this way, if you keep taking the Bible and the Holy Spirit out of context, you're not going to understand how great this power really is. I'm telling you, it is so important to read the Bible in context. And you may say, Pastor, of course, Simon the sorcerer is going to read the Bible out of context. But check this out, Matthew 16, 21. The Bible says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. He's explaining this to the disciples before he goes to the cross. And they they don't understand what he's talking about for some reason. Watch what Peter says. Peter took Jesus aside, watch what he does, and began to rebuke him. I just want to coach you really quickly, church. Don't rebuke the Lord, okay? Don't rebuke him. <laughs> the, the, the Lord should rebuke me. I shouldn't be like, hey, Jesus. Uh-uh. And that's what Peter was doing. Lord, I know you were saying you're going to die in there, but I rebuke you in the name of you. You know, like he, he, the Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Watch what Jesus said. This is Peter, the apostle. Peter, the apostle, whom Jesus would say, on this rock I will build my church. Peter, who became the first pope in the Catholic church. This is Peter. He's, he, he ends up reaching some people. Look what Jesus says to him. Jesus turned to Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter took Jesus out of context And Jesus called him Satan. It's not just Simon the sorcerer. The one that that Jesus, Jesus loves Peter. Jesus is coaching Peter. But when Peter takes Jesus out of context, he's twisting the words of God the same way Satan does. Man, it's so important. Listen, we've got to read our Bible in context. We can't look at Jesus with these Petrine hermeneutics. Like, like, oh, oh, Jesus, you're the Jesus I want you to be. I call it uh, Christian Buddhism, right? It's like Thomas Jefferson Christianity. Thomas Jefferson used to look at the Bible and he cut out all the parts he didn't like. And he threw those in the garbage. And then he only read the parts he liked about being nice to people and being loving to people. But all the parts about Jesus being your Lord, all the parts about Jesus rebuking you and changing you and transforming you into the person, not who you want to be, but into he, who, who he wants you to be, he would cut those out of the Bible. Christian Buddhism. It's like, you know, I'm just manifesting my dreams and Jesus is my boyfriend and he's sliding into my DMs and he just loves me so much and I just love God and like all my dreams are going to come true because I go to church and he's going to be the God of my dreams. I'm going to achieve it. I'm going to do it. And God's going to, ah, love and light, love and light, you know? It's like, I love church and then I like go here and I do this. and like no, 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 listen, I don't want Jesus to be my desperate boyfriend. I want Jesus to be my Lord. Come on, we need to be in a church that takes Jesus in context and says, yes, God loves me. Yes, God died on the cross for me, but he loved me so much that he's not going to let me stay this way. He's going to shape me through the challenges of my life. And as I read his word in context, it's going to hurt sometimes because if you you serve a God that never disagrees with you, then you are your God. We've got to take Jesus in context. And if it happened to Peter, it can happen to me. So, so how do I keep my Bible in context? Man, this is a tough one. I'm going to give you some practical keys at the beginning. But just like I did with, with, with classical music, I want to go a little bit into the Bible and give you some history here so you can get super fired up about your Bible. And I really believe that that hunger that you get as we're going to be talking it is going to translate to you reading this Bible. And maybe sometimes you'll make some of the same mistakes Peter did. But God is so good, he'll rebuke you. (laughs) And you're part of an amazing church community, and we're going to help you. And together, we're going to see Jesus for who he really is. So buckle your seatbelt. Are you ready? Get your pens out. What is the Bible? Listen, for some of you, this is going to be a little bit of review. But I find when preachers like me give a review, and I'm sitting there, Actually, joy bubbles up in my heart as I'm reminded at how awesome the Bible is and how good God is. So I hope for those of you who this is a little bit of review, you're getting pumped up. And for those of you who this is new, buckle your seatbelt because we're going to get into it right now. Okay, the Bible's 66 books. Okay, it's not just one big book. There's 66 books written over thousands of years by dozens of authors that communicates one message. Okay, there's 30, uh, 39 in the Old Testament, 27. In the New Testament, the Old Testament is before Christ, and it's the same Bible that the Jewish people use, and then the New Testament is after Jesus, and it's the Bible that completes the Canon of Scripture. The Old Testament is divided into a couple different ways. This is really interesting. There's the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. then there's books of history. Joshua judges Ruth, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Okay, hey, I, I did a Bible song when I was a kid. My parents put me in We college, and we learned a song to memorize all the books of the Bible. And I'm telling you, it still helps me today. Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John, Acts and Romans, Corinthians one and two, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews, James, First Peter, Second Peter, Three John, Jude, and Revelation. Bam! That's the New Testament right there. It was helpful. Uh, Old Testament, has got the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, books of history. Then there's books of poetry. You might have heard of the Psalms. You might know about Job. Okay? And and then there's books of wisdom. That's the Proverbs of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. And then it's divided into the major and the minor prophets. One cool thing about the Old Testament is the prophets, it's actually not a timeline. They're written in like longer books and shorter books, and they, they, you can move them in timeline over top of kings and chronicles. So there might be prophet um, Habakkuk speaking during a, a specific king, and then you can go and read Habakkuk and what he was prophesying, okay? So it's not, it's not all in chronological order, but it's, there, it's put in that order just to help us remember the books, and some of them overlap. It's really interesting. Then the New Testament, we've got the Gospels, the first four books. They're the stories of Jesus, so you, so you might, when you first became a Christian, you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and being like, why is every book the same? It's because it's four different authors giving four different angles of the life of Jesus. It's the way that Jesus made it it's so amazing. You get, you get all these beautiful pictures of the diamond of the life of Christ. Then you have history, which is the book of Acts. That's the start of the early church. That's where we found the story of Simon the sorcerer. Then we have the epistles. That's the, the letters of the apostles to the church, and some of Jesus's brothers also write to the church. So, so the books of Paul, Romans, right? Corinthians, Galatians. Then we have the book of Peter. We have the book of John. We have the book of Jude. Those are letters from pastors to their churches that have been canonized in Scripture to give us theology about the church. Then lastly, we have the book, the Apocalypse, which is the book of Revelation that shares the story of end times when Jesus is going to return again and make all things new. Some people are scared to read that book. I love reading that book. Jesus has a big sword. It's coming out of his mouth, and he's slaying all the bad guys, and we're the good guys. We get to go to heaven with Jesus. Can I get a big amen? Yes! Why does this matter? Okay? Listen, when I map out Scripture, it helps me read it properly. Okay? Books of history, I always read quickly. I'll read multiple chapters at a time because I'm getting some history. I'm getting some context. Uh, Of course, there's theology in it, but I read them quickly. Of course, there's beautiful poetry and prayerful things that happen, but I read them quickly to get some context. Then books of poetry, I read prayerfully. Man, I love reading. I read through the Psalms every morning, and I'll read a Psalm, and I will not just read the Psalm, but I will pray the Psalm. Man, actually, the Psalm, it's a great way to pray, If you don't know how to pray, find a great psalm. Go to Psalm 23 and just read, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need, and I will pray books of poetry to God. If I'm going through a tough season, go to Lamentations. Jeremiah had some tough seasons too, and you can cry with the Lord right there. You know, God will help you pray. And books, uh, pastoral letters or or, uh, books of prophecy sometimes, I will read theologically. I read slow, and I try and get them into my heart to get some theology in my heart see context will show you how to study the bible okay so how did this book get into my hands this is where it gets fun how did i get this here why do we have the bible today i want to i want to tell you a little bit about the history of the bible the first bibles ever were just the first five books of the bible it was the pentateuch And actually, it was a scroll made out of sheepskin that was 150 feet long if you rolled it out, and they called those scrolls a Torah. And so sometimes you might hear the first five books of the Bible called the Torah. Now, they would only write on sheepskin. They would never write on pigskin. A lot of people in the day wrote on pigskin, but pigs were unclean to Jews, and that would be totally inappropriate for God's word. This was a holy book. By about 100 years after Jesus died, we had the entire canon of scripture that we have today because... um, what the councils of the church believed were scripture were only people who were eyewitnesses of Christ could write scripture. And we had the letters circulating in the church at about 100 AD. And the apostolic fathers that guarded the word were insane. You can actually read stories of the early church fathers. There's a book uh, uh, called The Apostolic Fathers, and it's, and it's the writings of the disciples of the apostles. It's amazing. So you get to understand who John was after Jesus ascended. You can't find that in your Bible. It's not scripture, it's history, but it's so cool. One of them, his name was Polycarp, and and he was martyred at 87 years old. He spent his entire life after he he got saved guarding scripture with his life protecting the letters of the apostles, preaching God's word. There were heresies, there was Gnosticism and and, and the sects of Judaism that were trying to destroy the church and for his 87 years he guarded scripture with his life. One time they were murdering Christians in the Colosseum, and everyone started chanting, bring us Polycarp, bring us Polycarp. And, and, and they went and got Polycarp, he's 87, he's like an old man, you know, and they're like, we, we can't kill this old guy, and they're like, bring us Polycarp. So they brought him to the Colosseum to be martyred, and he said, wait, I need to pray before I'm martyred. And, and, and they said, okay, you can pray for one hour. He ended up praying for two hours for every person he had ever met. Lord God, I pray for Deborah. Oh God, she was so nice. You know, he's just, he's prolonging the inevitable. But his prayer was so beautiful that all the guards started weeping and they didn't want to martyr him. But the people said, bring us polycarp. And they brought him into the middle. And all of a sudden, wood was brought around him, and they started to burn him and light him on fire for the gospel of Jesus so that we could get this Bible in our hands. And, and, and the legend goes, and I believe it, because God does miracles in the people's lives that he loves, is there was an aura around him, and the fire wouldn't touch him. And all of a sudden, the whole arena was, smelt with this, was filled with a sweet-smelling aroma. And everyone in the arena recognized this was a beautiful offering to the Lord, and one of the guards saw that he was be- this was happening and he stabbed Polycarp in the chest and a dove flew out and so much blood poured out of Polycarp that it extinguished all the flames and he died. Like a Quentin Tarantino movie. I'm telling you, church history is crazy. But people died so that you could have this book today. A few hundred years later, as the Bible was circum- uh, circulating, In 325 AD, the canon was solidified at the Council of Nicaea where the bishops got together, organized by um, Constantinople. And everyone says, oh, Emperor Constantine had something to do with that. Now, all the bishops disagreed with the emperor. It was the most gangster moment ever. They all went, we're not going to believe in you. We're going to stand with God's word. And we solidified the canon. Again, uh, uh, about 20 years later, um, this was confirmed by Athanasius, a great father of the church, who wrote out the 27 books we have today in his Easter letter to the churches. Um, in 383, something crazy happened. These letters were circulating the church, the canon was solidified, and a pastor named Jerome translated the Bible into Latin. It's a translation that today we call the Vulgate. And the Vulgate translation was amazing because it preserved God's word in the highest form of language available in the day. The the language of the intellectuals, the language of the elite, all of a sudden the canon was uh, translated to that language. And that's why when you go to Catholic churches today, sometimes the masses are in Latin. They are still reading from Jerome's Vulgate. So it was done with good intentions. It was done to preserve God's word. But something terrible happened. Because we had this translation, the church made an edict that only the version that Jerome wrote could be read in the church. And no one was allowed to have a Bible in their own language so that they could read at home. They had to go to church to hear the Bible, and they had to hear it in a language that they could not understand. And we enter a period of about a 1,000 years called the Dark Ages, where Scripture was locked up in the vault of Latin. And what happened? Pastors and leaders became corrupt with power and started taking the Bible out of context. And it's because of these out of context scriptures because we did not have the Bible in our hands. That terrible theology was created. Like purgatory. And and, and like, like uh, they would have things called indulgences where maybe your grandma is, is has passed away. But you could pay a fee to get grandma from hell to heaven. And, and there was... Horrible things that happened in the name of Jesus. Why? Not because the Bible was being preached in context. Come on, church. Because it was being preached out of context. And then something amazing happened. On, uh, uh, in thir- the, the 1380s, there was a man named John Wyclef. You, you might notice on some of your Bibles it says Wyclef. There's still people translating Bibles in his name today. And he created the first Bible in something called Old English. And he translated from the Vulgate some of these scriptures in a language people could understand. And he was hated by the church. He was running for his life, trying to get God's word to people. There was like a covert operation, getting Bibles to the church, and they were starting to read it. And something called a reformation was beginning to happen. And there's this heartbeat. Reformation means this return to scripture. See, revival's return to the spirit. Reformation is a return to scripture. And people started reading the Bible again. John Wycliffe died, and 40 years after his death, the Pope actually excommunicated him from the church and desecrated his bones for bringing the Bible into a, in a translation that we could understand. And one of his disciples named John Huss in 1415 was burned at the stake for distributing Wycliffe's Bibles. And what did they use as tinder to burn him? But the very Bibles that he was trying to get into the hands of people And as John Huss died, he prophesied. And this is what he said. In 100 years, God will rise up a man whose call for reform cannot be suppressed. And then less than 100 years later, on October 31st, 1517, something happened called the knock Heard around the world, and Martin Luther nailed his 95 problems with the church. I think Jay-Z wrote a song about it. 95 problems with the church on the wall of the Gutenberg Chapel. And, and all of a sudden, the Reformation happened. And Martin Luther started to get these Bibles. And he started to teach people Scripture in a language they could understand. It was a return to Scripture. Uh, he coined the term solo scriptura, only the Bible. Not, not what the priests say. Not what the churches said. Just the Bible is enough to give us the right type of theology that we need to understand Jesus. In 1526, following this movement, a man rised up named William Tyndale. You might also see Tyndale. Mine says Tyndale on my Bible. Because Tyndale, with the printing press now active, started printing Bibles en masse. And he translated a whole Bible into modern English. Some of these we can still understand today. And he starts printing these Bibles and smuggling them all over Europe. He would hide Bibles in bags full of flour so they were still heavy. And and, and who bought most of the Bibles? The king's men. Why? So they could destroy the Bibles. But Martin Luther, uh, sorry, William Tyndale used all that money. What did he do? He made more Bibles. Come on, somebody. This guy's a gangster. He's a businessman. He's, I'll sell it to the king's men for twice the price and make twice as many Bibles. Psych, You know, like he's, he was crazy. And, and he started to do this. And then he prayed. He prayed a prayer because King Henry VIII was chasing him down. He did not want the word of God to get loose. Yeah, William Tyndale prayed, prayed in the uh, 1530s. He said, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. And in 1536, the Bible became legal on planet Earth so people like you and me could get it in our hands. I don't know about you, but when I hear how difficult it was to get this Bible into my hands, when I hear how God used his providential grace to make sure that because of the blood of martyrs, because of the blood of Christians like you and me who loved this word so much, that it would be preserved through history so that I could know the Lord in context. I never want to take this book for granted. Can I get a big amen? I don't want to do it. It makes me excited. When I get up and I open this book, and I go, thank you, God, for getting this Bible into my hand. Thank you that I can know you. Thank you that you made people passionate to preach and, and, and to, to, to go against the, the laws of the land to get this into my hand at the cost of their life. I'm telling you, the context makes me excited and it makes me want to open the word. Please don't take this for granted. Never take your Bible for granted. You get to hold the word of God in your hand. You get to know Jesus. Amen? To two quick things and then we're going to close. Joel, I can get you to come up here. Okay, Pastor Kobe, you've given me some context on what this is and how it got here. I still don't know how to read it. I still don't want to be Peter. I don't want Jesus to call me Satan. How do I read this thing? Well, let me just tell you how I read it, okay? And I'm going to say this. This is going to be a journey. Reading this book is going to be a journey. We're going to make mistakes. Let's make them together. And let's move forward because we love the Lord. I want to encourage you with this. The Holy Spirit says he will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit will help you as you read God's word. Here's what I do. I, rarely do I miss a day where I do my daily devotions in the morning. For me, I love to get up early. Um, not crazy early. I used to get up crazy, crazy early. Now I just get up early. And I'll open my Bible, and I come with a plan. And my plan is I read a psalm. And I'm going through the book of Psalms right now. Just like I said, I'll underline, and I'll take some notes of what God's speaking to me, and I'll pray that psalm and have a moment with the Lord. Then I'll usually go to the New Testament, and I'll pick a book. Like, uh, right, I, I just picked the book of James, and I bought a little Bible commentary. I looked online. I got a really good one, and, and I used that as a helper to help me understand the book of James as I read it, and it took me about three months to get through the book of James, and it was awesome. I took a ton of notes. I learned a lot, and that's what I love to do in my Bible study time in the morning. I'll also do this. I'll have a yearly goal. So every January, a lot of guys and girls in our church do this. We, we'll read the whole Bible in the month of January. There's a Bible reading plan on the UVersion Bible app. If you type Bible in the app store, it comes up. It's called The Shred, and it's just a little Bible study through the entire Bible. It's about an hour and a half to two hours of reading every day in January. It's kind of like the way to start off the year right. That's what we do. My wife did it this year, by the way. She finished The Shred. I was so proud of her. But we read, the whole, we read the whole Bible in one month. And this is what I, I, I liken it to doing. In January, I look at the tree. And the rest of the year, I examine the leaves. I look at the tree, take a step back, and then I examine the leaves. That's what I like to do. That's what works for me. Okay? And then I'll have a, I want to read this book and this book and this book this year, later in the year. Okay, here's, here's the third thing that I do that I think will help you. I have a lot of help from my pastor. I get to work with them, so it's great. And I get to go, hey, Justin, have you read this before? Like, I'm not getting this. Like, can you help me? And and we talk through it. And I want to challenge you, like that's that's why you need to get in a hub. You need to get around some people that you can talk through scripture with. And that's why I'm here. That's why Pastor Joel's here, and Pastor Dustin and, and our team, and, and, and like we want to help. Nothing makes me happier. Hattie will always text me. And he's like, Pastor Kobe, can you explain this to me? And, and he's like, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm like, this does not bother me. Nothing makes me happier than this. <laughs> this is awesome. So so that's why we're here. We want to help. So why? We can read the Bible in context. Okay, last, last thing I want to say. What if I do it wrong? What if I do it wrong? I want to, I want to encourage you. Um, when, I, when I got saved, I was uh, I was 19 years old. I had gone to church my whole life. My mom and dad brought me to church. And I knew who Jesus was, but I had never understood grace. And I thought and reasoned because of all the bad things that I had done, that Jesus was done with forgiving me. Like my chances were were over. And uh, that he was plugged. I literally saw this picture of Jesus like plugging his ears when I would pray. I'm not listening. Get behind me, Satan. I literally had that picture in my head as a 19-year-old kid. And uh, I remember one night I was upset and I was sure that hell was my eternal destination, that the Lord would no longer love me. And I had this old Bible. It's actually a Bible my uncle gave me, same uncle that teaches in California. It was an ESV Bible. It looked a lot like this. And it was covered in dust because I never read it. (laughs) And I picked it up, and I blew off the cover. And I literally prayed a prayer that you should not pray. (laughs) This is silly. I didn't know. I didn't know what context was. I I was just trying to figure it out. And I said, Lord, if you speak to me right now, I'll know that you love me. But if you don't, I'll know that you hate me. I wouldn't recommend that because God loves you. He does not hate you. And our mind can play tricks on us, but that was just the only prayer I knew how to pray. So I opened the Bible and I opened it to a book in the Bible called Luke chapter 15. It's straight open to that page. And I read this story. And it's a story called The Story of the Lost Son or The Story of the Prodigal Son. And it's a boy who basically hates his father so much that he loves his inheritance more than his father. So he takes everything that belongs to him before his father passes away and he leaves. And he spends his money On wild living. The Bible says on prostitutes, on gambling, on doing things that are unrighteous, that his father would never approve of. And when all the money was gone, he finds himself desolate and he's eating slop that pigs eat because he has no food. And he reasons to himself, maybe if I go back to my father's house, he'll be kind to me and let me be just a servant in his house so I'll actually have some food. And the young man turns back to his father. And starts making the journey home. And the Bible says that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And the Bible says that he ran to his son. And he wrapped him up in his cloak. And he was like kissing him. And the kid had a speech prepared. And he's like, dad, I'm sorry. And he's like, I don't care about your speech. We're having a party. My son's home. And I read that and I was like, oh my goodness, Jesus loves me. And I literally gave my heart to the Lord, and I moved to Florida the next day, because the only Christian I knew lived there. And I was like, I'm done with this life, let's go. You know what's crazy? I I did not know the context of that story. I didn't know the context, I, I, I didn't know anything about the Bible, but God was able to use it to speak to me. And you know what's so cool? The longer I've been a Christian, the more context I've discovered in that story, it doesn't make this story less powerful. It makes the story more powerful. Like I found out that, that the act that the boy did was punishable by death. So, so not only should have he not been welcomed home by the father, he should have been killed by the father and the village would be like, good job, dad. Good, That's a good dad right there, killing that bad son. I, I found out that eating pig slop was the worst thing a Jew could do. It basically, you're religiously unclean forever when you do that. It's almost like committing the worst sin you could ever commit. That's what the boy had committed. I also found out that Jewish dads don't run. They don't run. It's inappropriate to run. It's embarrassing to run. But God runs to those who are far from him. See, see the context didn't it make it less beautiful. It made it more beautiful. I want to challenge you. Read this in context. Beg, borrow, and steal. Do whatever you can to learn this book and love this book, and it will be life to you and life to the generations after you. Come on, can we put our hands together today? We hope that you enjoyed this edition of the Vivid Church Podcast. For more information about Vivid Church, check out our website at www.vivid.church or look us up on Instagram at vivid.church. Have the best day.